This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Spock becomes huge and large. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show putting humanities into science fiction. My name is Gepwin, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week we watched a weird one. It was yeah, pretty, it, was... it wasn't bad. I've heard this one was bad. I kind of liked it. I thought it was very silly, but it wasn't terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so far that's been Pretty the general and any good episode of animated series is like it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that wasn't that bad weird <laughs> but you know but uh this one uh has a uh, sort of a a reputation as being just kind of awful but i guess maybe it's not totally deserved but yeah it's it's goofy star trek the animated series kind of in its most goofiness. It has some kind of goofy ideas. And it has the distinction of being having been written by one of the original cast members. Well, semi-original yes, cast Koenig. members. Was written by uh, Walter Koenig. Who, of course, played Chekhov. If I uh, recall, uh, there, was a, there, was, there was quite a hoopla as far as uh, even getting the draft of this sorted out. Because uh, there was uh, issues with, you know, uh, so, okay, we want... This to happen, says Gene Roddenberry, and you know, there has to be plant, you know, plant aliens here. And Walter Kenning's like, okay, um, I guess I'll get that in here, and we'll see what we can do. And um, 11, uh, 10 or 11 drafts later, dot, 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 they had a script. Now, this isn't Walter Kenning's only writing credit for uh, TV stuff. Uh, he's also done some random episodes of stuff that I mostly haven't heard of. But he did. But one of the things I have heard about is Land of the Lost. He uh, wrote one episode of that in the in mid 70s yeah which i always enjoyed land of the lost as a dumb tv show silly kind of like this episode <laughs> but apparently he wasn't even intending to necessarily write for the animated series he didn't even find out the animated series was happening apparently until he heard of it and announced at a star trek convention he was at wait wait, wait one, one moment what's this now what's then found out that he in... wasn't in it which is great but everyone else was because <laughs> of budget concerns Yes. And yeah, like you said, there was just apparently a lot of the animated series had Roddenberry's classic interference, but to mm-hmm. add things that he felt you could only do in animation, which I guess is fair to a certain extent. But also Gene Roddenberry has been kind of very interfering with writers before for a very long time. I'm not sure what made you think you could only do plant aliens in animation when you drew them this way, because yes, <laughs> you, you could put an asparagus costume on an actor. I don't see why you couldn't. I guess to a certain extent, they could have just looked over what was happening on Doctor Who in the UK, like all throughout this time period and say, oh, it might look a little silly, but we can actually do this like on the cheap. So isn't isn't this the Doctor Who era of green spray painted bubble wrap? Uh, something like that. <laughs> it's uh, late Pertwee or early Tom Baker? I forget. <laughs> Oh, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, we have Plant Aliens, written by Walter Koenig, who also apparently even on Forbidden, on uh, Land of the Lost, he, he included a reference to his own name because he does this. Apparently there's yes. one in here 
one of the aliens is called a Wirtlaw, uh, which is... Yes, Walter, backward. He pulls an Alucard. <laughs> Al- Alucard, this is Neela. Neela, Alucard, alien, Dracula, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, that's all. They, we could read the Wikipedia page about the production more, but... <laughs> Well, I, I will say that uh, Walter Koenig eventually did get his revenge by playing Alfred Bester on Babylon Five, where he got to you know you know you know be as sort of you know cruel and evil as possible, and uh, and as as to I guess counteract the the vibe of suffering through this. I guess <laughs> that's always fun in sci-fi characters. Because <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of like a nice guy in Star Trek. In Babylon Five, it's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I just really like the character uh, uh, Bester. He's a, he's a good villain. <laughs> Koenig did audition to play the guest star in this episode, but they decided that instead of hiring someone, they would just have James Dunn do the voice again. Yep. yep. So uh, once again, we have no guest stars um, other than the uh, the main cast reprising themselves in different roles. So James Doohan is Agmar and uh, Stavos Caniculus Five. And Spock and Spock too. Spoilers. <laughs> so the Enterprise has arrived at a recently discovered planet on the far edges of the galaxy where Kirk McCoy and Sulu beam down to perform a planetary survey. Hmm, cool. Uh, so this is going to be a, an easy mission where we just sort of scan things and leave. And uh, hopefully we're not going to have any like wax nice stabbing McCoy this time, right? <laughs> yeah. And so McCoy doesn't get stabbed. There's that. Yes. <laughs> So this planet is super lush and filled with green and plants and things and also grand, swoopy, inhuman architectural buildings. Yeah, that's pretty sweet, actually. Uh, I wouldn't mind, um, you know, at least visiting there. Uh, also, at one point, the sun winks at Sulu, and it's not important. It's never explained, and it means nothing. It just happens. Well, maybe the, the sun's a seafood variable with a very strange uh, timing on it. <laughs> So Spock reads some power readings coming from that building. The big one, you know. I just liked this because they're showing them all in their classic animated series, we don't want to add color to this scene, silhouettes that aren't moving. (laughs) And the line is, there's power coming from that building. Okay, which building? Yeah, they're they're standing in front of an array of like 20 or 30 buildings. And the characters don't move or gesticulate or gesture or point or do anything. Well, maybe Spock is pointing with his nose, man. <laughs> and Kirk just knows that because reasons. Sulu also finds a small purple little tree-looking thing, but it moves. It's an animate plant species. That's adorable. It's like a triple, but with legs. Yeah, it crawls around and then reroots itself and then gets up and crawls around. Sulu, of course, touches it because mm-hmm. they do this. Yeah, then gets plant, you know? hurt. Like he gets stung or thorned by the thing and then drops it because he's why you you go to a completely alien planet and the first thing you always do is start touching everything. Yes. <laughs> well, it's already been established in uh you know, in the original series. Uh, Sulu does have a thing for plants and he maybe gets gaga over plants. I guess. Yeah, but you guys don't even wear isolation suits yeah. or gloves. You just start touching things. Yeah, I guess this isn't the Enterprise era, which is before this, where they concerned about all that all the time. Yeah, I I will admit, I grew up in the Sonoran Desert. 
I learned very early on as a child, you don't touch random plants. Because some of them are kind of nasty. Most of them are nasty. Most of them will hurt you. So maybe I'm just coming from this biased childhood of like, don't touch stuff if you don't know what it is. I guess to a certain extent, you know, uh, growing up in Iowa, there was a certain level of that, but we also knew what a lot of the plants were because it's like, well, that's corn. That's more corn. There's some grass over there. There's a tree. <laughs> then some more corn. Oh, hey, soybeans. <laughs> did they did they have a whole section in like preschool on don't put your hands somewhere you can't see because that's where all the snakes and spiders live? Um, not specifically, but I guess... You know, just sort of be careful and you know, don't put your fingers in weird mm. things. So that generally is just an Arizona thing. They specifically taught us how to, like, flip over rocks safely if you needed to, because, you know, there might be a snake under it. I'm guessing uh, lift it up with the, uh, you know, the, the far side first, so it would go that way if it wants to run somewhere. Toe of your boot. Use the toe of your boot and lift it up right. on the far side. Just don't get your fingers near it. Yes. You want to keep those safe. So anyway, this is why I keep harping on how they keep touching plants. Yes. <laughs> Stop touching it. You don't know if it's got thorns or poisons. or. And especially because we, seeing this as viewers, cannot tell if it has thorns because it's just a big fuzzy blob. <laughs> mm -hmm. So everyone else has moved off to explore and they find a building filled with technology and force fields and city protecting doodahs and things. I guess this is a scientifically advanced culture of some sort. Neat Way more scientifically advanced than anything they've ever seen. Wait, have we met sufficiently advanced aliens, or, <laughs> or where are they, actually? Spock does detect a humanoid life sign that's huge and massive and big, uh, but just then Sulu yells and they all leave to find him lying face down in the grass. Oh no, Sulu, uh, did you get a, attacked by a, a salt malt vampire or something like that? McCoy identifies that he has been poisoned, but he can't really identify the toxin to create a counteragent. Uh, with only minutes for Sulu to live, some green tentacle aliens appear, and they go, hey, we've seen this before, let us, like, stick him with my little tendril doodah. Yeah, so, um, Sulu, it's gonna save your life, but uh, it's time for the tentacles again, sorry. He was stung by the bush thing. So, the rat claw, he's gonna, we're gonna have to unpoison him. We've seen this before, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and according to Spock's scans, the aliens are in fact plants. Intelligent, mobile plants. I have this, uh, this expansion for Stellaris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was always a fun one. I once played some plants that uh, had the, the one event chain that, like, you talk to, like, a black hole and, like, rewrite history and stuff it's weird this so became a different kind of plant oh. i always liked playing as the consuming carnivorous plant maw unimind I should makes, do that sometimes. makes the game very boring cuts off literally all political options yes so it's very much a uh, internal management system mm -hmm. speaking of internal management uh how's uh, sulu's internal management system going he wakes up in minutes because their medicine and technology is just so good. It's hard to tell if it's technology or if it's just something that the plants themselves secrete. They keep saying your medical technology is amazing. So I yeah, guess it's that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the plant guy just like hangs at, you know, one of his little tentacle fingers and is like a, dripping a little doodah the, of the, uh, the, uh, the stuff at the end of it. It's like, it's not really a medical device. It just seems to be hanging out on his finger. Yeah. 
So the leader is called Agmar, and he knows a thing or two about humanoids because they've seen humanoids before. Oh, cool. Uh, so, uh, wait, are you guys being harassed by Vulcans? Maybe. <laughs> Spock, what are you doing here again? <laughs> Kirk says, I don't like mysteries. Where are your people? It's like, wait, what? Where did this come from? What mysteries? Oh, well, what, why do you assume that they're hiding their people from you? This is out of nowhere, Kirk. Okay, so you, you land on this planet you don't know anyone and you've uh, only seem to manage to lure out some people after, you know, a life and death situation because they have compassion for one of your compatriots and you're like freaking out. Like, where is everyone hiding? It's like, well, maybe they were hiding from you guys. Yeah. Because, maybe. you know, they don't know you, <laughs> but they're, 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 their, their compassion was just strong enough to overcome some of that. And at least a few of them. So, you know, but, you know, Agmar takes them to see their hall of giant dead mummified ancestors. Oh, um, they have one of those too? Yeah. It's a long hallway filled with giant versions of what we are calling the Philosians. Well, uh, the, uh, these, these dudes, uh, I guess this means that these are the children? Yeah, this, this is the generation before Agmar and everybody are their kids. They were super young when a human came and accidentally infected them all with a disease. Oh no! Hmm. But he also helped in them find a cure later. Oh well, that was nice of him. But it was only after everyone else was dead. Oh gosh! Just then, some big purple pterodactyls with wiggly tentacles swoop in. These things are very silly. Yeah, they are. So, like the tentacles are like springs at times and kind of just all over the place and. Mm. Make no biological sense at all. Yeah, and how are these plants? They don't look like plants. They just have little springy tentacle doodahs. This is an example of cheap animation being cheap. In the transcript, they're called swoopers. Uh, I recently had someone suggest that they should be called phytodactyls. <laughs> which is what I'm going to go with now. Right, the phytodactyls. <laughs> Kirk tries to shoot one, but his phaser doesn't work. And Agar announces that they're actually in a building with a weapons dampener. So good luck with that. So um, so how do we deal with these guys? Do we ignore them? Do we hide? Do we bust out the uh, the batleth here? What, what's up? The phytodactyls just restrain them all and then fly off with Spock. More, more tentacle action, though. Mm. Keeps happening. Agmar apologizes. But the kidnapping of Spock is somehow necessary because he's the perfect specimen that the master's been looking for. Okay, so you just sort of hijack Spock here, and I thought you guys were cool. Yeah. Uh, you just are you just going to be like we're going to keep doing things, not telling you what's up, we're asking you permission or consent or anything like that. We're just going to be jerk faces like this. Yeah. Why do we? Keep, why can't we go anywhere nice? <laughs> the phytodactyls fly off. Kirk uh, attacks. Agram for kidnapping Spock, but then the master appears, who is a literal giant. So I'm guessing the gravity on this planet's kind of low, because <laughs> this guy is huge. This guy is huge. He's at least three it's times the size of a normal human. He's going to be like 30 feet tall or something. Mm -hmm. This is Dr. Stavos Kinicholas 5. 5. And he demands they return to their ship, because I'm sorry, but I just need Spock. Um... Well, are you going to give him back? What's up? No, um, just go. Bye-bye. Just, just go away. I do not care about you or your concerns, and uh, you're probably going to try to interfere with my plans, but, you know, go away. 
With nothing they can actually do, Kirk agrees to leave Spock behind, very reluctantly and sadly. Oh, beam us up. Now, if uh, Scotty was with, on the, in the landing team, yeah, he would have uh, figured out a, a daring plan to uh, you know, confront the, uh, the giant and, like, there'd be an action scene where they run under his legs and grab his giant mm. weird staff <laughs> thingamajig and all sorts of cool stuff would happen uh, because, you know, Scotty is the most uh, competent member of the crew and he would, uh, his presence there would demand such action. Yeah. What but a, he wasn't there, so. Hung onto the bottom of a sheep and escaped and done other things with giants. Stolen a goose. Scotty. <laughs> Back on the ship, they have no sensor readings on Spock, uh, Caniculus, or the Philosians. Everyone's gone. So either they're all dead, or they are hiding in a some sort of tran- you know, you know, sensor-proof bunker of some sort. Yeah, they're probably dead. Let's go. Scotty's working on some sort of special equipment. McCoy wants to make his great-great-granddaddy's super gardening recipe from the ancient South. Yeah, because in the ancient South, it was well understood that all plants were the enemy. Yes. (laughs) And Uhura has found some information in the ship's computer on Caniculus. So uh, is he uh, some sort of, uh, you know, Romulan uh, interloper, a Klingon spy, or...? So Stavos Caniculus was a old Earth scientist... During the eugenics war. Dun, dun, dun. So this was like Khan's like uncle or something like that, I guess. Or possibly rival. His plan was to clone a perfect human specimen into a new master race. And I guess that's what he's trying to do here still. Yeah, I guess. So, you know, he was laughed out of the scientific community at the time because, I mean, genetically modified super soldiers, fine. But genetically modified giant clones? I scoff at thee. <laughs> so, so we got our normal, uh, you know, uh, supermen who are, you know, ten times, yeah, it's ten times the strength of normal men, but these guys have that plus another ten times the strength, and also they're huge. So this, you know, reminds everyone of old stories of a man who wanders the galaxy looking for someone special, <laughs> just in time for Valentine's Day. Hooray! And there was. It would have only been better if it was also Valentine's Day. But wait, it was? Hooray! This is going to come out at least four weeks after Valentine's Day, but it's Valentine's Day for us. (laughs) Yes, uh, so uh, we can have all the references we like, and we're going to enjoy it. You listen next year, go back, listen to this on Valentine's Day. It'll make sense. Fine. Even though this was over 200 years ago, Caniculus could have been cloning himself over and over, which is why he introduced himself as Caniculus V. So, wait a moment. Does he have a clone army? No, just one gonna, at a time, apparently. Is he going to go kill all the Jedi? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, when was the last time you even saw a Jedi? Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I don't think they're uh, president of the Federation anymore. Kirk, Sulu, and McCoy prepare to beam down with a rescue party armed with all their new info about giant clones. Uh, Scotty's made some new toys, which look like weird three-pronged spray gun doodahs. Um, oh, uh, we got um, some sort of tuning fork device. Cool. And McCoy's made his gardening concoction. McCoy, I hope this isn't just like weed or something like that. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> On the plant, they find a few more phytodactyls, and uh, that that's it. They're like, oh, these things are dumb. Moving on. Yeah, so so I guess they're not being controlled, and that's, they ignore us. So, okay. 
Then they find the Felosians pulling ivy off of some ancient spaceships, preparing them for some sort of planetary exodus or some such. Kirk finds Agmar and takes him hostage so that he can explain the backstory. Oh, so uh, so what's your backstory here? Uh, you guys like peaceful explorers until this you know this guy shows up and like kills off your uh, almost your entire species with a plague here. So far, we've got that they are a dying race because the disease killed off the older generation, but also it left the younger generation with no ability to reproduce. So Caniculus is going to carry on their great work and mission, which is what the spaceships were for. But he doesn't elaborate. He's just like, oh, you guys are worried about your friend. I'll take you to him and show you he's fine. Well, uh, uh, thank you. You seem weirdly reasonable all of a sudden. He leads them to some underground tunnels where they are attacked by more phytodactyls. They escape oh, no. to some sort of laboratory where they find Spock laying in a glass case. Also, they find Mega Spock. He's also <laughs> huge and large. He's, and he's standing above them, just kind of standing there, looking at them, mm. watching. I guess. Yeah, he's the same size as Caniculus. Oh, I guess uh, Caniculus now has someone to play chess with that's of the same size. Yeah, know. giant chess. <laughs> you always wondered who they made those giant garden-sized chess sets for. Now you know. This, now we know. <laughs> so... Uh, now it's too late. He's like, it's too late to save Spock. His mind's been transferred to Mega Spock. This will save the galaxy. Well, um, so what? So what, what's your what's your actual plan here? You say mm. this is going to be a good thing. It's going to be helping lots of people. But why do you need a giant clone of Spock exactly? We'll get to that first. My favorite scene, and we need some gifts from this. We put them up because they all put on masks. They all put on Corona masks. Yes. So wear your masks, everybody. Yeah, wear your masks. We need, like, pictures of, of Kirk and, and McCoy. It's like, wear your masks. <laughs> we I'm need this. I want one. <laughs> they use these to, because they're spraying, they're spray guns at the phytodactyls who go away because apparently McCoy made homemade herbicide. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. And So the, the, the phytodactyls are like, oh, we're dying and we're going to, like, lay here and uh, not try to kill you anymore. Yeah. Uh. Safe for the minute, they try to save Spock, but Mega Spock blocks them. Dang it, Mega Spock. Apparently the thing here is that he can copy the clone, he can make an exact duplicate of a adult humanoid, but he can't copy knowledge, so that's what's being transferred, but this is going to kill original Spock, and Mega Spock's become like slowly more sentient as we've gone along here. Wait a moment, haven't we been to a planet before where there, where there was a transfers of co consciousness between... Uh, you know, a human and like a a, 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 you know, a duplicate of them that left the uh, the duplicate you know, the, the the original uh, uh, person intact. Can we just go look them up again and help you out? But you destroyed the robot place. Oh yeah, because the guy was mean Oops. and you didn't like Lurch. Well, I guess that sucks to be us then. So on the ship, they've found some vital information apparently, and Scotty has to use almost all the ship's power to send Kirk a message because they're so deep underground in this lab. They're able to get them the vital information that Caniculus in his later writings wrote about using his master race as a galactic peacekeeping organization. So you wanted to make Starfleet before there was a Starfleet? Yeah, super police. But like with giant clones of people with, you know, super strength, super minds, whatever. Yeah. So knowing this now, Kirk points out to Caniculus that this is a waste of time because the Federation is already at peace and has been for about a hundred years. And plus, the you know the Zentradi have already come and gone by this point. Come on. He doesn't believe them because there was a eugenics war and a galactic war and a Klingon war and a 
Romulan War. <laughs> what about the Psychic Wars? Didn't mention the Psychic Wars. I, I guess not everyone's a veteran of the Psychic Wars. Are we in Babylon 5 territory again? No, I'm actually referencing a Blue Oyster cult song. Okay. <laughs> so all of these things believes he believes that the peacekeeping force is still needed because there's still wars. They're in the middle of a Cold War right now. Mm-hmm. With the Klingon. They just got out of the Klingon War. Or they're just going to get back into the Klingon War. They may be in the middle of the Klingon War. What's our, what's our timeline here? It doesn't make any sense. We're not in the Klingon War yet. We were fighting them. Now they're in a Cold War. They're able to do the Kittimer Accords. Late, well, not no, not the full Kittimer Accords. They have like a pre-Kittimer Accord in Undiscovered Country. Then I guess they go to war again. Because you need the Enterprise... C to get destroyed to propagate the Kittimer Accords, which then you have peace by the time you get to Next Generation. So apparently there's a war between them signing the original treaty and Next Generation. I'm not entirely sure if that's true. I think that was more of a, you know, things were kind of cooling between the Federation and Klingons at that point, and they had kind of a uh, an unhappy peace. Uh, but you know, with the the Enterprise C like defending some, uh, you know, you know, fighting off the Romulans there, the Klingons like maybe these guys aren't so half bad here. They'll actually like help defend us and crap. So maybe we should be friends. I think the thing we've learned here is Star Trek's never given a toss about its own timeline. Yes. So maybe we shouldn't <laughs> either. Ta-da! So anyway, they need a peacekeeping organization. Agmar goes, this was our plan too. Right before the disease wiped us out, we were going to send all of our people out on ships to also be a peacekeeping force in the galaxy. Given how a normal human-carried virus like wiped out their entire population, this would not have gone well. Nope. First planet they show up on, it's like, oh my god, plant moss, oh, they're dead. I wonder if perhaps the, the virus, I wonder if it was maybe intentional action. No, they name it. It's like a normal virus that people carry. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that part. Yeah. It's a uh, gram-positive streptococcal infection, which I is bad. What that is. It's very bad. It's Mercer. MRSA. <laughs> yeah. Bad bacteria-resistant. Bacteria, antibacterial-resistant streptococcal something or other. Ouch. Yeah, that's bad, bad news. I mean, not all of it is, is bacterial-resistant. I've been learning a lot about plant viruses recently because I just started growing orchids and like they're scary scary freaking things see human viruses are bad eh? yeah plant cells are so thick that a plant virus is like 20 times as bad and there's no way to get rid of them or cure them it's like just keep your plant as far away from other plants as humanly possible and hope for the best mm-hmm. all right anyway they're going to like impose peace on the galaxy which is a fun concept so you're basically going to conquer the galaxy yeah but peacefully. Well, um, you don't really need to anymore, guys. Uh, things are cool now. Yeah. Kirk goes, hey, the Federation agreed on peace. No one imposed peace on us. Also, he starts to address Mega Spock about Vulcan philosophy, which isn't well defined. He just goes, hey, you know the Idic? And he goes, yeah, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. He goes, isn't imposing peace on people counter to the general Vulcan philosophy of the Idic? And he goes, oh, yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense. If we're kind of imposing peace on people, we're sort of forcing a specific, you know, way of having peace on them, and that will destroy them, and thus there'll be less diversity. Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But Caniculus gets upset and goes, no, and smashes the weird machine thing. 
so that they can't reverse the mind transfer. Oh, dang it. Which also, your animation continuity here is so screwed. <laughs> they come in, Spock is laying in a little glass sarcophagus doodah. They grab him out of the sarcophagus doodah and start taking him to the door. They get blocked. Unconscious mm -hmm. Spock is now being held by McCoy for all of these scenes where anytime McCoy says something, they show unconscious Spock laying on McCoy's lap. Later, now, Coniculus breaks the thingy and Spock's back in his glass box. Well, maybe he, he like, climbed back in while no one was paying attention. It's cold out here and going back to bed. <laughs> I don't want to get up, Mom. Five more minutes. I'm being mind-drained. Tiring. Uh, I need... I need to finish this dream where my brain gets transferred to a giant clone of myself for really lame reasons. But, you know, Mega Spock now has an idea. He just touches normal Spock, mind melds him. They both get to keep all their brain. My mind, your mind, and I'm copying everything back so we're backed up. everything's backed up properly. Yeah, there you go. Now they're both right. just Spock. Cool. So, uh, Spock, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Spock. Um, how are you? I'm 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 pretty swell as well. Um, let's uh you know uh, leave these losers and take over the galaxy. No, let's not do that. Actually, um, yeah. Normal Spock recommends now they don't need an army of super soldiers. Which you know they they never really resolved this. Caniculus is just like, oh, there's two Spocks now. No, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe Mega Spock and Caniculus should stay here and work on finding an actual cure for the Felosians. Yeah, that would be nice. So they can like start reproducing again and you know their society is not going to die out with this generation that'd be yeah. nice and kirk's like hey an ancient clone of a giant eugenicist from the darkest period in earth history working with an illegally non-consensually cloned giant spock i think the federation's gonna love this <laughs> and then this has nothing to do with anything but it is by far the weirdest and somehow best and most sexually charged ending mm -hmm. of any Star Trek episode. I'm excited. Earlier in the fight, Sulu did a body throw on one of the Felosians. Kirk goes, hey, Sulu, can you teach me that body throw? It might be cool. And Sulu goes, well, it's hard because you have to be inscrutable. Kirk says, but Sulu, you're the most scrutable man I know. Dun, dun, dun. And then Sulu winks at him suggestively. <laughs> like yes i am sir <laughs> like yeah i'm so scrutable so uh probably good that the the, the, the the episode there and uh yeah i am like at this point i'm 90 percent sure even though george takai has come out and said that like canonically he doesn't think that sulu is is gay i'm 90 percent sure that he and kirk are sleeping together oh kirk's kind of Kirk's probably sleeping with everyone except like Urgahara or something like that. See, I'd have a lot less problem with Kirk if they made him like a Captain Jack style by by character. Just like I'm gonna flirt with everything in the galaxy. Yeah, but now we're we're still in very much 60s 70s mode here as far as you know your strong male lead. Yeah, which is just so it's not even by it's just accidentally gay. It's a, it, like your seven, your 60s, 70s strong male heroic lead is a super gay man who just happens to sleep with women. It's, like, it's well, weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, your guys, you, you're getting some weird trope crossover here. 
what is this? I don't know, but I want to see more. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that was the the Infinite Vulcan. And um, so now we have a clone, of, a giant clone of Spock just kind of hanging on a planet somewhere. That will just never really mention ever again. So I'd also like to, I think, point out here that once again, we have a situation where a uh, an episode that is supposed to be famously bad features Spock having his mind uh, stolen from him. Yeah. Neither of those episodes is that bad. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, there's some weird stuff happening here. I guess that's something that happened. Sure. <laughs> yeah, like, like Spock's brain wasn't good, but it was just weirdly directed. This was, um, I don't know what. This wasn't bad. It had some interesting ideas. Some of it was mildly nonsensical, and it kind of jumped around a bit, but, but it like wasn't. It wasn't bad. I, I guess uh, you know, as far as you know, things we could sort of jump off uh, about, you know, to talk about. We could uh, talk about you know the eugenic stuff again. We could uh, talk about you know how to bring peace to a a highly divided uh, set of peoples. We could uh, you know you know talk about plant life forms and. Uh, you know, is it even possible for such a creature to be mobile and existing without being, you know, sort of, uh, you know, and, you know, self self undulating on a very uh, fast time scale? That one's a little weird. I mean, the plant thing's a little strange because our general definition of plant life versus animal life comes down to cellular structure, mm -hmm. which I guess you could just have a slightly different cellular structure. There's no reason that this plant alien has to have the same cellular structure, but like. A plant cellular structure is so rigid that it doesn't really engender the same kind of quick movement. You don't, like, plants can move themselves and they do. generally using uh, hydraulic, sort of hydraulic action. And there's, uh, let me see if I can find the name of this thing. There is a plant that moves very, very quickly. It, it curls up when agitated immediately. Sort of an emergency, move all the liquids and die, we're moving. Okay, good. Yeah, they've done a lot of interesting, like, weird studies with this thing that prove plants have memory and some other things. So they know who's been good to them and who's been mean. Yeah, it's called a Mimosa pudica. I'm sorry, my, my Latin name pronunciation is awful. A Mimosa pudica is a kind of, it's kind of a fern-like thing, and if you touch the leaves, they all just curl up almost immediately. Cool. Um, they've actually done some research with this thing, because apparently if you drop it, it also curls up really quick. So they did some experiments with like a little kind of plant elevator. They, they put it in a little basket and like would drop it and watch it curl up. But after a few times doing this, it knew that this kind of drop didn't also lead to immediate harm and it stopped curling up for the stimuli. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I'm fine. Um, cool. I don't need to react so. I will yeah. save energy. Good. And then you obviously have something like a Venus flytrap, which uses a slightly different motive force. It kind of holds itself open under tension. And when one of the interior hairs is triggered, it releases it and snaps closed and then very slowly opens up again afterward. Um, when it's closed, it does, yeah, it does its business. But the thing with mobile plants, all mobile plants, as far as I am aware, is that the... the um, the cell structure, the rigid cell structure, doesn't like being this mobile. 
these these bits of plants can only move a certain number of times before they become too damaged to do so and are usually then discarded and regrown which is fine because plants do that all the time but uh it it can't move back and forth as fluidly and as often as a you know animal being does because the cell structures are just too rigid it's not set up right yeah it's it's like uh you know if you got like an old pair of leather boots they might you know fit well now at one point they're a lot more rigid and at some point they're going to be you know sort of so worn through that they're going to just kind of start breaking and yeah. so you, you, know, you have these sort of different phases here where you you kind of wear out what your actual material is and when that is like a large section of your body well you might want to be careful so then you wind up in the kind of issue of like what do you use to define a plant are they just saying that these the cell structure of these things is like more animalistic or maybe something in between that allows this kind of movement but maybe they are photosynthetic so they're photosynthetic organisms or are they still or are they carnivorous plants or something similar they're not photosynthetic but they still eat it's unclear yeah it's it's very unclear uh it's like okay so uh, is it because you know some part of their cell structure is different or the same than uh, earth-like plants or is there you know some sort of weird biochemical thing that they're sort of measuring here so i guess maybe brings in the question what even is a plant well that's your issue isn't it like right now on earth we've divided things into three major categories of animal plant and fungi because fungi don't fit anywhere yeah <laughs> they're weird they're like we're gonna be all like just kind of growing out of your sidewalk suddenly and it's gonna be great and a lot of it comes down to like fe- uh, cell structure and feeding mechanism because animals generally are non-photosynthetic and tend to consume something else be it a plant or another animal or just another cell whereas most plants have the different kind of cell wall which is much harder and tends to be a bit squarer than an animal cell and they're largely photosynthetic i'm not prepared to say they're 100 are but i can't think of a non-photosynthetic plant example they tend towards it just because i haven't done the research maybe it is part of the general definition but you run into a problem when you hit aliens because they always want to fit aliens very neatly into something that we already have because uh yeah, sci-fi might be the you know allow us to explore all sorts of unknown things, but we still have to have some sort of connection to our uh, modern world that people so people can understand. But even still, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, if we were going to break aliens, they could make an alien. Come on. Yeah, and it is like a fun thing to talk about, especially once you get into stuff like aliens. I was kind of surprised. I, I'm trying not to sound mean, but I was kind of surprised because I kept hearing these stories recently where someone like learned something about how we've either changed taxonomy like the general taxonomy of where animals go to like show that animals and plants are related or not related to other animals and plants and to sort of organize them scientifically I've, i've heard these stories recently of someone who like learned how arbitrary that is and it kind of like made them start questioning the general idea but like I, th- I think we need to be very clear in a scientific kind of way that these taxonomic definitions are there for us to be able to talk about stuff in an organized way. They really don't have any particular bearing on the reality of the world. Indeed, it's very descriptive as opposed to, uh, you know, 
you know, giving much hints of what's actually going on. Because you kind of like early on, you had taxonomy based solely on appearance. It's like this thing looks like this other thing. Like this bird is the same color as this other birds and they live in a similar area. So they must be closely related. Recently, we've come in with genetic, uh, looking at genetics. And we've also restructured things out of the classic, uh, you know, kingdom phylum species, yada da, into a clade system, which is all genetic spread and very complicated stuff I don't fully understand. And now we're looking at it genetically and saying, well, genetically, this animal is similar to this animal, which is very different from how we used to think of it, because two animals that look almost identical are super far apart, genetically speaking. It's like convergent evolution sort of uh, keeps happening and then we get confused by it. Then we figured out genomes, and then we're like, oh, we're not as confused. We are still confused. But see, we need, we need to understand this, because when we say something like, this is what a plant is, it's because we looked at a group of living things, said, they all share these general characteristics, so we're going to put them all together into one group. What, what about this exception? Well, it got most of the things, so we're going to count it. Yeah, see, we wind up with weird problems with these exceptions, and we get so married... <laughs> to the idea of our definitions that we try to fit exceptions into our existing definitions instead of changing our definitions to accommodate exceptions. Yes. <laughs> Which I guess in some ways it allows for the, the science that's being worked on using these, these, the, the, you know, the, the, the older definitions to continue on and to still be functional as far as people coming into the field because they're not, it's like, oh, I read this old book and it's talked about all this other stuff and that's not what we learned anymore. And, you know, and so there is maybe a little bit of that continuity, which is kind of nice. But um, at the same time, it's still very much a, you know, this is becoming more and more arbitrary the more we think about it. Yeah. And if it stops at a certain point, it just stops being useful. Then you have to throw the whole system out and start over. I saw this very interesting experiment, which I'd like to see more. They should do it with kids in school. Maybe they do now. But, uh, Someone got three actual taxonomists together, like people whose job is to figure out these things. And they gave them a bunch of candy, like, you know, M&Ms and Skittles and hard candies and stuff. And they said, organize these taxonomically. And all three of them came up with a different way of organizing them. <laughs> nice. Like one was like, these are all the ones like these ones are organized by color and then by shape and then by brand. And it's like these guys like these ones are organized by brand and color. And it's like these ones are organized by shape and texture. So um, so what's what's the, the ultimate truth of how candy, sh candy should be organized? Uh, kind of none of them, actually. Mm -hmm. How we want to talk about it and, and organize our thoughts. What's the most useful thing for you? Do you have a food allergy? Because then you should organize it by ingredient. Yes. <laughs> Are you looking for a particular flavor? Because then you should organize it by taste. Are you looking for, like, are you trying for brand loyalty? You should organize it by brand. Yeah, I guess that kind of, uh, you know, comes to an important point there that a lot of, you know, you know, taxonomy, as far as how useful it is, really needs to be attached to, you know, some of those key items that, people are using in order to differentiate uh, different elements. I know it's kind of saying this is A equals A here sort of thing, but you know, it is the whole point of why we use this. Uh, yeah, but you yeah. need that because like, yeah. <laughs> if you had a math system and you said A doesn't equal A, that changes all of your stuff. Yeah, it, 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 cause, it can cause some problems. But, uh, the, but to, to, I guess, so it is both difficult to have this sort of arbitrary system that we 
have to construct, make exceptions to, and you know modify over time. You know, to, because you, you now you have to maintain this whole system that all right now part of your work is doing research is going to be maintaining the system as opposed to actually pushing the envelope of research. But at the same time, it still is very useful in helping keep the or, the, the pushing the envelope research organized, so you can actually you know, make sense of things when you're trying to relate it to previous research. So continuity of science, that's good. Yes. <laughs> I think we should at least touch on, we, we spent way longer talking about taxonomy than I thought we would. <laughs> we should at least touch on the grand plan here. The the whole, let's let's ignore all the eugenics-y stuff for a while. We spent a long time talking about eugenics in the Space Seed episode. Yes. It it doesn't work. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, it it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. It's one hundred percent just based on racist assumptions that we're masquerading as science. So, like, if someone says eugenics anything, stop listening to them immediately. So they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> A good rule of thumb, I guess. Like, even apart from the general racism, they just don't understand science enough to be speaking about anything. This is something important to me. Um, if this is what's important to you, then that's even worse than I thought. Uh. <laughs> But the general idea that they have here is having a galactic peacekeeping organization that's imposing peace on people. And imposed peace is a weird idea. Like, can you force peace? Like, technically it's peace. If you're defining peace as the opposite of war, then technically any state of existence which does not have war is peaceful. Yes. Even if it really sucks. You've got kind of competing theories here, and you've seen them play out even in american history like it's weird that they went so against it in this episode because in previous episodes they've been very like we are the peacekeeping organization we are america we go to this country we tell them to be peaceful and if they don't we blow them off the face of the earth well here it's like well maybe blowing people off the face of the earth is a bad thing and uh, maybe we should like figure out how to live together as like you know a common community where we like respect each other and are not, you know can get along as opposed to trying to like you know impose our uh, you know ideologies on each other through force well this is one of the things that's kind of important to look at cuz you you're trying to wind up with the same basic definitional outcome you're trying to not have war and violence now you can achieve that through this plan which is to put in a strong enough peacekeeping organization that you can basically punish war and violence away control control the populations so harshly that they can't enact war and violence which then is a weird one because the way that you're imposing peace is to act violently but generally we define out state violence because yeah, this is this is the, the exception this is the, the legitimate violence everything other violence is illegitimate which is how you wind up with these weird you wind up with these weird things of like police violence is not considered to be violence because it's supposedly violence in the name of maintaining nonviolence later state violence usually gets kind of like state violence is necessary to you know preclude other non-state violence and so you you get to sit, you know, so you can quickly sit, get a situation where uh, the state violence is not really serving the people anymore and so you get this, you know, you know you, basically you end up with, you know, either the, you know, modern police in the U.S. or uh, the uh, the peacekeepers in Farscape. Yeah, it really, 
it really depends on what you're doing. Generally, like, I don't know, personal philosophy, violence can sometimes be necessary. It should always be a ultimate last resort, and you should always realize that you have done damage that you're going to need to undo later. But your other idea that Kirk is advocating in this situation, he's kind of going on the we can all just agree to stop having violence, which generally, yes. Um, practically, you kind of need to get to a point where you have improved the general situation to the point that violence becomes no longer necessary. Yes, uh, you know, where in order for, you know, basic needs to be met, uh, you know, enacting violence on others isn't, you know, part of the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the only option you have. Uh, you can instead say, you know, you know, work with somebody else or trade for something or, you know, you are granted the ability to come up with all the resources you need without much trouble, uh, without having to impose your will on somebody else. Which, in fact, is like as scaremongery as modern news tends to be. Um, we are in an unprecedented level of global peace over the last few years on Earth. Like, there's there's yeah. been very, very few wars or major conflicts. Yeah, uh, we've we've talked about uh, you know Cold War and you know Mad and all that sort of stuff before, and so people have been kind of getting more and more shy about the destructive side of uh, of war on on one hand, but also on the other, it's a lot more sensible to work with other people at this point because then you could both benefit and everyone kind of wins. Well, it's just kind of it's just become so much easier mm -hmm. to one. We have other problems. I'm not going to get on another giant capitalist rant, but like... <laughs> well, we have lots of problems, so there's still a lot to be sorted out. But <laughs> In general, technology has led to such a massive upswing in efficiency of production that it is way, way cheaper and more efficient to get everyone in the world the things that they need to live than it used to be. So it is easier for a nation to have all the things that it needs. And if a nation has all the things that it needs, it doesn't have any particular reason to go to war with another nation. We can, we can bring this down, because when you start talking about global politics, everything starts feeling giant and hard to understand. Just like, uh, just like a giant Spock. It's, <laughs> it's basically the same idea as your stealing a loaf of bread argument. Mm-hmm. Let's say that we start with the general premise that most people agree on that stealing is wrong. And you now have someone who stole bread. Oh, no. How do you stop this? Well, you have a couple of options. You look at why they stole bread. And maybe they stole bread because they are starving or their family is starving. So now you could, in fact, just give them the resources they need to live and they would stop stealing because they would no longer have a reason to steal things. And stealing is harder than not stealing. So just makes sense there. Or you could go the other route, which is what we usually do now, and say, well, this person who stole something needs to be taken out of society or punished in some way to prevent them from stealing anymore. And so we are going to make them suffer more because they attempted to not suffer. Now, theoretically, both of these have the general outcome of that person no longer stealing things. Generally, we've seen... One, the, the giving someone resources tends to work out better in the long run, 
But if you are just looking at it in the short term, definitionally, both of these options, either giving the person resources so they don't need to steal or locking the person away in prison so that they can no longer steal, both of these things have led to this person no longer stealing. Yeah. One of them is a little more cruel than the other. But this is basically a way that you can understand this on a smaller scale. These are the two arguments. Either you lift up everyone so that war and violence is no longer necessary, or you try to control everyone to the point that war and violence is no longer plausible. Yeah, but there's still going to be the war and violence that you are enacting in order to enforce this will upon the world. Yeah, and then you also wind up with the problem that you have where uh, peace through violence is achieved by consent, because at a certain point, people need to agree to stop fighting you. Mm -hmm. You can have a police force in the streets, like, imposing whatever on people all you want at a certain point those people have to basically agree in some fashion to stop fighting you otherwise the peace you will achieve is to have killed yes. them all and so there either's going to be a lot of bodies or an endless fight between these you know the, the state forces the non-state forces yeah so like you can have a th you can even get into a situation as ludicrous as it would be where you have like a a peace officer watching every individual you have like half the population watching the other half of the population until they all agree to stop fighting it's there's still going to be violence eventually you get to a ludicrous level of control in order to control a situation this completely and so it's very much a game that you cannot win so maybe we should go the other route then yeah, it's a game that you cannot win and then people start using the fact that it doesn't work to justify doing it more and that's ridiculous I mean, it's ridiculous when you say it like that. You just, you, you, I see you can wind up stuck in these ideas. You're like, this is a good idea. I have a good idea. We're going to send a global police force out to like make sure that wars stop happening in other countries. That sounds great. Then it stops working. And you're like, well, this was a sound idea. We just must need more police force. So uh, double the budget, double the, uh, the manpower, uh, get some new, uh, you know, sp space lasers involved there. And uh, get ourselves a helicarrier that's, you know. Which generally, as we learned recently with, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and people looking more closely into these things, police budgets tend to be massive. Millions of billions of dollars more than anything else happening in a state budget. It's like, so the, 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 the police are getting this massive a fraction of the, the budget while this tiny sliver over here is dealing with housing and you know, making sure people have food and med you know, medical, uh, you know, access and all that. And so what if we were to res inverse this, 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 uh, this equation here so that these other things were getting a lot of funding so that people would be not motivated to steal, uh, you know, that, have that loaf of bread anymore. And then we wouldn't need that police force because, well, there's no crime anymore. Well, you wind up with two fundamentally different philosophical takes. See, we are operating from a framework that crime and violence and things is something that people do because of other circumstances. The general idea of a police force is predicated on the philosophical idea that people will just do violence unless stopped. Yeah, sort of a... Uh you know, everyone wants to you know, engage in the purge or something like that, and so we, we have to... You know. Yeah, it's non-situational. 
it doesn't matter how good of a situation you're in, you are still going to do this. And then you wind up with weird evidence like, like you know, hedge fund managers still do illegal things to gain more money, even though they should have enough to live. Um, it points to some other holes in the system. It gets complicated. But those are your basic ideas. Either people, people's violent and, you know, antisocial behavior is predicated on the situation that they're in or there are just some people who are going to engage in antisocial behavior no matter what you do and i guess the you know police only sort of option is sort of implies that that's the you know the you know you know every criminal has this intense moral failing about them that they are destined to become criminals and so we must you know actively be on lookout for all these uh, members of our society who are lurking around every corner that are going to be causing trouble at some point, and thus we can never you know, let down our vig- you know, endless vigilance because then they'll come out and, I don't know, spook us or something. Well, yeah, our general, even in America, our general idea of police force is based in a very religious moral philosophy. Like, the, the reason that we call our prisons penitentiaries is because they were designed as places for you to go and be penitent for your sins. You know, it was only in the in Indiana Jones did the man, the penitent man pass. Yeah, and only because if you kneel, you don't get your head cut off by a giant whirly buzzsaw. Oh, this is getting into a weird metaphor as far as you know, the uh, criminal justice system. It is. is. And also, that part of the movie always bugged me. Because like, I get the whole, a penitent man kneels so you aren't going to get hit by the you know, head-level buzzsaw. But when are you supposed to figure out you also need to do a forward flip? Yeah, that's not entirely clear. <laughs> I guess just keep all your momentum and keep going forward and uh, hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> the penitent man does a cartwheel. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, back to criminal justice and uh, trying to impose order on a, uh, a much more complicated world than that. Yeah, just generally, you you have this, like, it's it's control versus cooperation, sort of. You either are trying to manage everyone to like impose your own version of control on people so that they will do what you want and everything will work out fine or you trust people enough that if you like just generally improve things and can work out a general consensus of how you want things to be stuff can be that way so i'll i'll, I'll be frank and say that i'm not really in either camp but i do lean definitely more on the uh, let's cooperate and try to figure stuff out here it's it's very good. You wind up with some very complicated situations. It's, it's sort of like uh, the the taxonomic, uh, you, know, you know, sort of complications. In fact, like I tend to believe, I do believe that if we improved everyone's situation to a certain point and eliminated as much suffering as possible, we would like no longer run into many of these situations. You are going to always run into outlier situations where something generally awful happens. But I think overall. We need to sh- like we have such a skewed value system at the minute that we don't actually value individual people not suffering. Yes. If we value if we valued and prioritized the alleviation of suffering, we'd wind up in a much better situation than thinking suffering is excusable in in so many situations because it's going to lead to something else or it's just better or even the very horrible idea that because suffering is unavoidable it's fine and and excusable let's 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 change the world let's make it better let's uh let's 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 prioritize you know you know treating people cool you know like you know people and be nice to them 
We, we talked about this in another episode recently, but I keep getting in this discussion with some friends that, you know, the world's big. You as an individual can't always affect meaningful change, and that can feel disheartening. But if you can see where the wrong things are wrong and not excuse that they not excuse them just because they exist, then when change happens, you can be ready for it and you can either help or at least not be one of the people who's keeping things from changing, which is also important. We, we miss out on this when we talk about activism and things. You have a few people who are activists who like are actively trying to change stuff, but the important thing that actually leads to things changing is that a lot of people have stopped trying to not have it change. So, you know, if you want to keep the status quo, uh, sorry, but uh, for the rest of us, let's like actually try to, you know, you know, we don't, even if you're not being super active as far as, you know, you know, trying to change the world, not being in the way of change is a good first step. See, that's just, that's not much harder. In fact, it's easier. <laughs> We keep telling people that, that you have to be like a super activist leader and whatever. And I'm, and that's great, but not everyone can be in that position. You know, some folks, you know, have day to day to worry about. That's more important because, you know, they have to eat. What's a lot easier than like having to do a thing is not doing a thing. Yep. <laughs> so all you have to do is not try to prevent things from changing. And you're like, that's that's less doing less things. It's easier. Now, don't become a soldier for the status quo just because you're afraid of, you know, you know, things might not be perfect if you, you know, you know, if anything changed, because guess what? If anything changed, things might actually end up better. Perfect is an illusion anyway. Yes. Now, uh, don't be uh, keeping yourself in a uh, an unqualified local minimum when there's much better places to be on as far as our a perfect world definitionally precludes change. Change. It kind of happens. Mm -hmm. All right. Make good use of it. We had to wrap up because we've been talking about all these things for too long. So, But I haven't even had the chance to talk about my uh, critique of the, uh, the the dictatorship of the proletariat and Marxism. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get a chance. Another time, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's like four or five next-gen episodes where we'll get to that. All right, go. <laughs> all right, right now, uh -huh. so that we don't stretch to two hours on social critique it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show hey everybody welcome back to the galaxy's favorite game show i hope everyone's having a good time today our various contestants have been racking up plenty of points this week and uh some of these are contestants are a little taller than usual, but I think their points still count. They still are deserving of good stuff here. So uh, we got our first prize to hand out, which is the Kill First Tri Diplomacy Second Prize. This goes to Stavos and Angmar's people's plan to bring peace to the galaxy because apparently enforcing violence is their first choice as opposed to, like, diplomacy. What do they win, Gepwin? They win some awesome tripods. It's like... The, this is like what happens if Mars Attacks gets interrupted before Mars Attacks. Or War of the Worlds, <laughs> well, rather. Uh, we, yeah, we were planning to go invade that planet over there, but we got sick first. Huh. Usually that happens afterwards. Hmm. So uh, maybe the, their tripods will be even better because now we're going to be uh, immune to that the disease that uh, killed them all off. That is true. That is the problem. There's always another disease. Yes. 
Or you wind oh, up great. in the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2, where it turns out the disease was actually genetically modified purposefully to kill the Martians. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, they made a second movie of that? It's not a movie, the books. Oh, the books, okay. <laughs> they go to Dr. Monroe from the island of Dr. Monroe, and he cobbles together a bunch of like different bacterias, and then they infect the Martians. That works, but uh, Dr. Monroe's not on our uh, game show today, so uh, moving on. <laughs> Our, our second prize is the the cat burglar prize, which goes to Kirk, Sulu, and McCoy when they go back and try to rescue Spock, uh, because they try to sneak around, but then they're, they they kind of get themselves like noticed because they try to kidnap Angmar. But anyway, what do they win, Gepwin? They win some different outfits. We've done this before. Like every time they go cat burgle something to sneak into some place, they're still wearing bright red outfits. Like, do not look at me. My uniform b- makes me hard to look at. Look somewhere else, please. Else, please, guys. Ho-ho. They were still bad at sneaking into places by next generation, but at least they put on black clothes. Like, yes, Worf, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're in your ninja outfit. Picard, you're in your ninja ap- outfit. And uh, Beverly, you're in your ninja outfit. Now we're going to spend like a, half an episode climbing through caves. And... Well, they still found us anyway because of a trap. But anyway. <laughs> also, they should have brought their cat crewman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where'd she go when they're cat burglaring? Well, uh, you know, I guess, you know, different shifts, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Our uh, third and final prize for today is the I Think I'm a Clone Now, which goes to Spock for having a, now a giant duplicate of himself that I guess just now kind of exists in the Star Trek universe and is available if they ever need him to come back, I guess. What does he win, Gepwin? Actually, both of them win. Spock gets some incredibly awkward family reunions. <laughs> Especially by the time you get to the frickin' Kelvin timeline. Now you've got young, different Spock, who, like, I saw him in Heroes first, so he's always going to be the weird bad guy from Heroes. Yeah, the psycho killer then, with the, uh, all the power collecting. So you got him, and then you got old Spock, but probably also clone Spock. And have they even found the frickin'... Gateway to Forever by the Kelvin timeline because you get young Spock in there too. No one knows what the heck happened to Spock's dad by the time you get here. It's it's all this. it's all a little uh, convoluted and uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so uh, giant Spock, maybe someday you'll come in and uh, rescue us all. Maybe in like season five of Discovery or something like that. Yeah, is that going to be the end of the like fina- ultimate series finale to Discovery? Just, oh no, what will happen? Oh, look, giant Spock. Ah, he's going to punch the giant monster that was going to eat all the time-space continuum. Hmm. Anyway, that's all the prizes we got for today. L- uh, take us away, Gepwin. Mega Spock versus Godzilla. Ah. <laughs> Fire breath is entirely illogical. Uh, this metaphor is illogical. Giant lizard metaphor for nuclear weapons. <laughs> it's illogical to be in Star Trek because we've already had our po- you know, post-apocalyptic period. Okay, thanks everyone for indulging whatever that was <laughs> on the galaxy's favorite game show! god i do i don't know i don't mm. <laughs> so um uh, so uh do, do you want to do, do you want to have sympathy for this guy <laughs> you know which guy the devil the next guy sympathy sympathy for the devil Unsung, mm. 
<laughs> Yo, next next episode. We sort of uh, genre bend here quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, there's there's pilgrims, and yeah, this this next episode is called the magics of Megas Tau. Megas two. Yeah, Megas two, Megas Tau. Depends on how you pronounce this. Well, there's no A in there, so I, I don't go with the A uh, option myself. Mm. There's a, a guy with little horns and some some hooves, and there's some people mm. with like masks on, and they're kind of creepy. And there's some magic going on. A witch trial, literal witch trial with magic and in a pentagram. Yep. And uh, they they dr- I'm looking at a picture here. They drilled an extra armhole in the stocks. For their three-armed uh, lieutenant. Oh yeah, we have to have special, uh, you know, setup for him. Yep. Um, yep. It's <laughs> all we can really say at this point. I guess we'll find out uh-huh. more later. There's. Ooh. Oh, is there a magical Asian woman that Sulu winds up with? That seems. That doesn't seem like it's going to be good. Awkward, isn't it? Uh, looks like Kirk gets to use magic. Yep. Um, I see uh, Spock like. Drawing a pentagram. Oh, he's also. I see another picture with him, like uh, holding out his hands and like playing chess or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. with like magic powers. Yeah, I see Spock drawing a pentagram and things. Spock says witchcraft. Spock says witch rights. So I, I, I don't. I have my doubts, but I don't think Spock is actually Wiccan. Probably not. The philosophies don't seem to line up pri- quite the same. That's a little different. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> the magics of Megas Two. Uh, that's what we're doing next time. This this has been just really, yeah, we've been uh, really goofy this episode. Mm-hmm. This is going to be even more goofy. Also, I'm so what? Why did they draw his pectoral muscles like that? So you could flex. But look at just look they they're just weird squares on top of his rib cage. The okay the, the go look up look up some screenshots from the magics of Mangus too because the the anatomy on this devil dude just doesn't work. He's a rib cage on top of abs with pecs just shoved on top of it. It's like, uh, you know, some sort of alien design, but he's supposed to be human-ish. It looks like the way an action figure is connected, where, like, the oh, rib yeah. cage section is a different piece than the abs section. There's, like, a little rubber band in there, and so you can, like, pull them up slightly and then rotate them around a few times, and then suddenly, like, yeah. go, and they, 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 they circle back several times over as they spin around. And then the rubber band snaps because they don't haven't made action figures that way since the seventies, yeah. and and so you're like, oh, now my 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 Devil Man is apparently not a thing. Hey, that's an anime, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't magic. Magic. Next next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the Star Trek Magical Mystery Tour. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. 
you may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash drisix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware the next time you step off the transporter that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>